Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon, and I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. The Washington Post reports Russia tightens its grip in Mariupol. The situation at the embattled steel plant in Mariupol is quote-unquote critical as the last Ukrainian fighters in the port city face quote, constant storming, end quote, by Russian forces, despite Moscow's promise of a ceasefire. Then they continue still. An advisor to Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky said earlier today that active fighting is still underway and that Russian troops entering the plant a day earlier had been, quote, pushed out by our defenders, end quote. What are we to make of this? Let's turn to our first guest. He's a Moscow-based international relations and security analyst, Mark Schloboda. As always, Mark, welcome back. Dr. Leon Garland, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the Critical Hour. So the Washington Post makes this out to be some type of noble effort of resistance, even though it reports Russia's grip on the rest of the devastated port city appears to be tightening, with city officials claiming Russia is clearing debris from a bombed-out theater as it prepared to host a parade in Mariupol to mark its victory day. So, Mark, we hear reports constantly that Russia's losing, Ukraine is winning, this effort to support the steel plant is noble, but they're talking about hosting a Victory Day parade down the streets of Mariupol. What's going on, Mark? Okay, so uh, first of all, the Victory Day parade is is not about the current conflict. It's about the anniversary of the end of World War II, which, of course, is in a mm-hmm. very – it's probably the most important holiday of the year right up there with New Year's uh, f- uh, for Russians uh, because of the sheer number of Russians, uh, some 30 to 60 million, who died – uh, in World War II, repelling uh, Nazi Germany and its European fascist allies. It, of course, is extremely poignant because during that conflict uh, in Western Ukraine, there were a substantial number of domestic uh, ideological fascists in the organization of Ukrainian nationalists in the Ukrainian Surgeon Army that welcomed and sided with Hitler uh, and fought against the rest of peoples of Ukraine and and the rest of the Soviet Union. Um, And the modern context with that is that many of these, or pretty much all of these um, uh, state-armed and funded neo-Nazi battalions, uh, Azov, the right sector, uh, C-14, Carpathia Siege, Idar, they worship, right? Their hero is Stefan Bandera, the, you know, the, the leader of the Ukrainian insurgent army and many of the other figures there. And it's hardly just the fighters on the streets. Um, right before the conflict began uh, with Russia's intervention in February. In January of this year, the Ukrainian uh, Rada, uh, the, um, their parliament, passed a bill honoring a dozen different neo-Nazis Holocaust, and Holocaust perpetrators, Nazi collaborators, with 
uh, their, their days of celebration honoring them across the country. Uh, so uh, that is the poignancy of special poignancy of Victory Day Parade, particularly in Mariupol, where the noble holdouts in the Azovstal steel factory are some 2000 mostly Azov literal state armed and funded neo-Nazi death squad fighters. And uh, supposedly there are still a number of civilians uh, still down there with them. Several hundred were brought out through a humanitarian corridor um, on uh, uh, just in the last 48 hours. Some of them chose to go to Russia. Some of them chose to go to Ukraine uh, uh, or, or Russian-held territory in Ukraine on, on the one side. Um, and, um, you know, uh, it's still a uh, situation there. Um, the Russian president has ordered the Russian military not to storm the steel factory. Underneath the steel factory is a labyrinthine uh, series of tunnels and uh, Cold War era uh, nuclear bunkers, right, uh, meant to withstand nuclear blasts. It's a it's a serious uh underground fortification there and there's no doubt that that would nullify almost all of the advantages uh that the russian mystery would have uh, military might have uh and they would lose a substantial amount of, of forces trying to get uh these uh neo-nazis out from underneath this plant uh and they decided to just let them wait wait it out instead Right. You know, they're running low on food, water, ammunition and so forth. Um, and uh, so the Russian president just said, set up a cordon around it. Don't let even a fly get through. Uh, and and, you know, we'll continue to offer them a chance to surrender. Um, well, uh, they have gotten some out via humanitarian corridors, which is which is some of the civilians out, which is a good thing. Uh, there still evidently are some more down there. In fact, there was a rather touching video uh, that was released on the accounts of, of uh, those uh, fighters who are, are down there, social media accounts, that showed several of them, uh, one of them at least a female fighter, uh, and several of the others singing, singing a song. And it was rather nice, except that this was a song glorifying Stefan Bandera. <laughs> <laughs> Because if you're a Nazi, that's what you sing. I mean, um, yeah. Uh, so um, you know that 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 goes to again the point uh, and the poignancy of the Victory Day uh, parade here. Uh, there have been accusations that Russia has been storming uh, the facility. That does not appear to be true. Um, what has happened is, is that when these humanitarian corridors were used, it seems that some of the Azov fighters use the opportunity to return to the surface and to try to set up some firing positions uh, again within the uh, upper levels of the steel factory above the ground. At which point, once the humanitarian corridor was closed, Russia then proceeded to take out those firing positions again uh, with a combination of uh, our, uh, airstrikes, uh, artillery strikes, and uh, some, you, know, you want to say, incursions into the factory grounds to make sure they were cleared out in which they withdrew. Meanwhile, the Kiev regime is trying to present that as it somehow bravely fought off uh, an a, attack by Russian forces. That's, that's the other story. 
Well, you know, I think a much easier way, thing to do, an easy thing to do would be to kind of just have a court outside of the, you know, maybe a mile or so away and in, in, in abstentia for all of the people in Azovstal, convict them, surround the whole thing with barbed wire, put up a sign that says prison. And then just guard the perimeter and just let them know we've given you all 100 years each. And, uh, you know, you, you just hang out. We're good. And uh, we'll have guards surrounding the area so you can't leave. And at some point, if we need to go in and collect up skeletons, we'll do it. If not, I guess you'll be there for a while. Please send the civilians in out if there's any left. We're not going to come in there fighting. But you are convicted and you have personally chosen your own prison and cell. Have a, have a nice life, however long is it. The Azov neo-Nazis under there made a request today. They offered to release more civilians in exchange for food and water, which makes clear that they're, they're not civilian. You know, they are, you know, hostages. They are human shields. And they're willing to trade uh, some of those civilians to let them go uh, in return for uh, uh, food and water. Well, I do it for this reason, Mark. If you're a prisoner under international law, I got to provide you with food and water in your cell anyway. So I'd keep doing it. Keep giving us some, uh, we'll give you food and water. You keep sending them out. Sooner or later, you, you're, you're going to run out of hostages, but we ain't never going to let you out. Ever. You have chosen yourself for the rest of your life. This way, we don't have to transport you somewhere. We don't have to do anything. We're going to give you food and water anyway if you're in jail. So as I see it, they've chosen their cell. Ah, let, them, let them hang out there until they're— Like, like teenage mutant ninja turtles living in the bowels of the New York uh, subway and in, in, in sewer system. What do you think of my plan, Mark? Unfortunately, uh, my understanding is that there are connections from some of these tunnels that go underneath elsewhere in the city. Uh, I would hope that Russia has identified those and closed them off. But, I mean, these neo-Nazis, they are armed with, among other things, uh, portable— uh, U.S. and British anti-tank and anti-aircraft missiles. Um, so I'm not quite sure that simply setting up a cordon might work in the long term. They may decide to go out in a blaze of glory. That's why I've, I'll keep. Uh, that's why I, at all times, I keep my keep guards and tanks around and say, if you decide to come out, things ain't going to work out for you. But in any way, just the plan. I don't know. I think we could adjust that plan. Um, now I find it interesting. Um, something that Sergei Lavrov said, he said, Russia's seeking to be good neighbors with Central Asia. We already know that. But does this imply anything? Is there something new that we should p take from those from this statement and from this particular article? Yeah. It, what the uh, Russian foreign minister is referring to there is that uh, Western countries in particular are trying to draw splits with the Central Asian countries and Russia saying, oh, uh, that Russia is acting out of imperialistic impulses rather uh, than, say, uh, the U.S. having geopolitically flipped a country with a un violent unconstitutional push, pursuing a civil war against its own people and setting up military bases in the country next door and saying that if Russia does this to Ukraine, it could be doing the same thing thing to you later. And Russia's saying, well, uh, you know, unless you're, you know, uh, suddenly setting up NATO military bases and shelling ethnic Russians within your countries, we don't think you really have anything to be worried about. There's a, also a story here 
about TASS reports Russia's air defenses shoot down Toichka U missiles. On Tuesday, they shot down these missiles and intercepted nine Smirch rockets over the Donetsk People's Republic and other regions. Uh, what does this say, Mark Schloboda, about the whole intra-Ukrainian war, the West attacking the East? Yeah, I mean, it has to be said that this is what more of what has happened for the last eight years. This is the regime in Kiev shelling, bombing the people in East Ukraine. It's happened for eight years. It's still happening today because they view those people as the enemy, as as separatists, as pro-Russians, because they refused to accept the results of the openly West-backed putsch in 2014 that had violently unconstitutionally overthrow the last legitimate democratically elected government of the country that these people in East Ukraine had overwhelmingly voted to represent them. Uh, so um, that that is you know why the civil conflict began, why it raged for eight years, and why Russia, when when uh, the Kiev regime abandoned the Minsk Accords and uh, you know started welcoming uh, NATO in in a big way, felt that they they finally had to act uh, to change things, that things were not could not be settled diplomatically. Um, and, you know, the continuing assaults, I mean, uh, in most cases uh, that we've seen so far uh, in recent hits and since the Russian intervention, uh, that these Tochka U's are being fired at city centers, right? Not not at uh, any type of military target, uh, because, again, they view the people of East Ukraine as, as the enemy. Um, and it it does show that the Kiev regime does maintain some strike capability. Uh, at the beginning of the conflict, they had uh, the Tochka U is a Soviet era, uh, but still fairly effective uh, ballistic missile uh, with a launcher. Um, and they had some 90 launchers and some 900 missiles at the start uh, uh, of this conflict at least according to the uh, military um, identification sources that I have uh, read. Um, and uh, the uh, Smirch is a multiple long, uh, launch rocket system. Uh, it's something like a, a truck-borne artillery system. But it, it does show that uh, Russia's air defense is uh, uh, you know, acting and managed to sh shoot all of these down, preventing civilian casualties. Mark Sloboda, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The French left agrees rare coalition deal to take on Macron. France's Socialist Party and hard-left La France in Sumois agreed in principle yesterday to run together in the June parliamentary elections and try to deprive newly re-elected President Emmanuel Macron of a majority. What's the long-term effect of this for France going forward? For insight, 
Let's turn to our next guest. He holds the John Jay and Rebecca Moore's Chair of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's one of the most prolific writers of our time. His forthcoming book is entitled The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, sir, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. So if confirmed, the coalition pact, which the Greens and communists approved earlier this week, will be the first time the French left has united in 20 years. But under the helm of the Eurosceptic leftist LFI this this time around, the deal took shape under the leadership of uh, LFI's firebrand Jean-Luc Mélenchon, fared much better than the ailing Socialist Party. So how big of a challenge will this be for Macron, and what does it mean for Marine Le Pen? It's very significant. Um, This is something that should cause all to perk up their ears. What I mean is there is a distinct possibility that as a result of the parliamentary elections in a few weeks in France, that this new coalition led by Mélenchon and his party— of France unbowed could claim a parliamentary majority, which would mean that Mélenchon would be prime minister under Mr. Macron, although you can well imagine that there will be sharp clashes between the two, and that is built into the system, which could lead to what the French call a cohabitation. Uh, recall that this possibility of a left victory is not beyond the realm of imagination. If you go back to the first round of the presidential election a few weeks ago, if you add up all the totals of Mélenchon's party, the communists, the Greens, the socialists, they would have finished first ahead of Macron in terms of the first round. Now, what it means for Madame Le Pen, it's unclear because it's also unclear uh, how her party will do in this parliamentary election. I have to say that I was rather stunned to read that the so-called overseas territories of France, speaking of the colonies such as Martinique and Guadeloupe, uh, that they voted in favor of Madame Le Pen. Now, I interpreted that as did others as a kind of way to slap Mr. Macron in the face, but still. Uh, when you have this predominantly black population, the Caribbean, uh, within hailing distance, in fact, uh, not only of uh, our friends in Haiti and Jamaica and Cuba, but also of the mainland of North America, uh, this is something that we should not lose sight of. Also, we should not lose sight of the fact that this could be significant because I'm afraid to say the other shoe is in the process of dropping. What I mean by that is, Look at the Wall Street Journal this morning. There is a foretaste of what Secretary of State Blinken was about to deliver before he came down with COVID, uh, announcing a tightened policy towards the people of Republic of China. And what's striking about the article is that Russia and China are spoken of as one theater. And I would particularly urge our friends on the left to read this article because basically it suggests what some of us have been saying all along, uh, that the Ukraine crisis is part of a larger 
Cold War, perhaps leading to hot war battle, not only involving Moscow, uh, but Beijing. And then uh, opposite the editorial page is another uh, striking piece by former Texas Senator, U.S. Senator Phil Graham and Roger Wicker, the senator from Mississippi, who, if the Republicans take the Senate, will be heading the Armed Services Committee of the U.S. Senate. They basically say that Taiwan should be converted into a U.S. unsinkable aircraft carrier. To use the phrase of the headline, they want to make Taiwan into a porcupine. (laughs) By that meaning, that uh, Beijing would be pricked, if not worse, if it seeks to claim the territory that it considers to be its own. So this suggests that we're entering a very uncertain field, a very uncertain kind of terrain. And therefore, this news about the French left could not have come a moment too soon because I dare say that whatever recent comments that have been made by Mélenchon uh, and the Socialist Communist Greens, that uh, this could possibly help to restrain President Macron in terms of deepening the relationship with NATO, uh, which various parties in that coalition have expressed skepticism about, not to mention Mr. Macron himself calling NATO uh, brain dead, but also it could lead to skepticism towards the French and therefore NATO role in the crisis and conflict in Ukraine. And then finally, uh, speaking as a historian, I, I would hope that the possibility that you could have radicals elected to lead France, speaking of the Mélenchon-led coalition, he being a former Trotskyite, by the way, should cause many on this side of the Atlantic to rethink the unnecessary, the inflated uh, with yeast uh, notion they have of the founding of the United States in 1776, which, of course, is followed by a few years, by the French Revolution of 1789, uh, I think France, France's revolution, which of course led to the abolition of slavery and the Haitian Revolution by 1791-1804, uh, can be justifiably pointed to with pride by many in France, whereas what happened in North America led to a deepening of slavery, more genocide against Native Americans, and now, as the title of the book you so kindly mentioned in my introduction, uh, could lead us to the precipice of a peculiar kind of U.S. fascism. Slovakia has uh, warned on Wednesday that it will not be able to agree with the European Commission's proposal for a ban on Russian oil, basically saying that would destroy our economy. It seems to me that gas and oil, you know, oil embargoes not being withheld, that the leaders of Europe are hell-bent on destroying their economies one way or another. But your thoughts on this? Well, uh, I think that they're playing a kind of three-card Monty. Those of you who are familiar with the New York Times Square game, you, you, you really have to follow their sleight of hand. I mean, for example, uh, there are sanctions on Russia, we are told, but not sanctions on the Gazprom Bank, the number three bank in Russia, uh, the bank that facilitates natural gas trading. And if present trends hold, would be the leading bank. And then the New York Times tells us that India is buying uh, Russian petroleum on the cheap, refining it, and then selling it back to the Western Europeans, who knowingly buy it. And so 
They're still consuming energy from Russia after a detour through India. So it's very difficult to take seriously what some of these European leaders are saying. They're obviously involving, involving themselves in a kind of sleight of hand, but it's still rather dangerous because they're whipping up hysteria. They're whipping up hysteria with regard to this conflict, and uh, many are predicting that sooner rather than later, Washington and his NATO allies will have to become even more involved in this crisis in Ukraine in order to rescue the Zelensky regime, and that could include boots on the ground. It could include um, more muscular intervention, and dare I say, uh, dare I mention, the biolab that purportedly were found on Ukrainian territory controlled by Washington. Uh, dare I mention the N-word, the nuclear option, for example. So this crisis is very profound, very serious, which brings us back to point number one, which is that this possible victory of the left in France is not arriving, if it does arrive, a moment too soon. I'm glad you mentioned the escalation of the U.S. and NATO, because as all of these weapons have been pouring into the country, I've been asking the question, well, who's going to use them? Because current reports indicate that Russia is accomplishing what it has set out to accomplish, uh, probably slower than anticipated, but accomplishing nonetheless. So I'm, I'm, I'm just sitting back looking at all of this armament going into the country saying, well, who's going to be around to use it? Well, that is one concern. Another is that we all know that Ukraine is a sink of corruption. We all know about the scandals mm -hmm. involving Hunter Biden, the president's son, and perhaps the uh, big man himself, as he was obliquely referred to, speaking of the U.S. president. Do not be surprised that Allah Afghanistan in the 1980s, when weapons were poured into that country and then leaked out, and were used ultimately against the United States and its allies in terms of jeopardizing the European economy itself and the short-sightedness of their leaders, particularly uh, Ursula von der Leyen, the de facto prime minister of the European Union. Uh, they are apparently not thinking this through in terms of how these weapons could be sold on the black market, probably being sold on the black market as, as we speak, and then could be turned <clears throat> westward against the European Union and its allies. It's a very dangerous state of affairs, and I hope the Europeans wake up before it's too late. Your thoughts on the Virgin Islands, I find that interesting. They're protesting UK's direct rule plan after their premier's arrest in the U.S. Well, these are remaining colonies. What's interesting about North America and the United States is that it is not only uh, has surrounded by colonies of Great Britain, but we oftentimes forget that uh, northeast of Maine are a few French islands that are part of these so-called overseas territories. And I've oftentimes wondered of what France intends for these islands, particularly if there is a downturn in relations uh, with Washington. And I also wonder how those islands voted. I've seen voting totals with regard to the French election concerning Guadeloupe and Martinique and New Caledonia, for example, in the South Pacific, but not with regard to these aforementioned islands. 
Netherlands. And finally, France shifting blame on Russia in Mali as Paris losing influence and control in Africa. A mass grave discovered by Malayan soldiers near a vacated French base prompted Paris to accuse a private Russian paramilitary organization, Wagner Group, of planting corpses there to smear the French armed forces. Uh, your thoughts on this development, Dr. Horn? Well, I've been following the story about the corpses. The bodies apparently had been decomposing for some time, which would put it in a time frame when France was control of the territory in which they were found. It's apparent that France is losing influence in that part of Africa. And to come back to where we began, the Texas book that you so kindly mentioned in your introduction also has evidence as to why there's so much anger at France, because during the French intervention in Mexico in the 1860s, they basically recruited soldiers from that part of Africa and sent them across the Atlantic to prop up their misrule in Mexico. And indeed, some of the soldiers, the African soldiers, uh, may have relatives and descendants not only still in Mexico, but some of the money across the border into Texas, where I'm now sitting. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leanne. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Here's a question that's on the minds of a lot of people, and it's the title of an article in Asia Times. What if China and Japan dump their U.S. treasuries? America's top Asian bankers hold a combined $2.4 trillion in U.S. Treasury debt and both have good cause to sell. For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a journalist, social activist, international business consultant and chemical engineer, George Koo. As always, George, welcome back. Thank you, gentlemen. Nice to be back with you. So the article opens, the Japanese yen's sharp decline may be producing an unexpected loser, the U.S. Treasury Department. One of the most intriguing mysteries of the last three months is this. Why is Japan, the biggest foreign holder of U.S. Treasury securities, placing so many sell orders? In three months, Japanese international managers have dumped a cool $60 billion of U.S. paper. George Koo. I know you're not an economist, but you're a very wise man. What's going on here? Well, you know, I wrote, I guess earlier, uh, I wrote a, a piece in the Asia Times about the blowback from the Ukraine war. And, uh, and I alluded to not exactly this very thing, but the cause of why Japanese is selling the dollar. And, and it's, it's one of the blowback consequences but the short answer is, as the dollar got stronger, and the dollar got stronger because because the Fed raised the interest rate, the yen and the euro got weaker, and and it's a it's a relative to the strength of the dollar, so it goes in the opposite direction. So what prompted the Bank of Japan to sell dollar is because they 
don't want to see the continuing weakening of the Japanese yen. And the only way they have to prop up the strength of the yen is to sell the dollars that they have in the reserve. It's either that or raise the interest rate to compete with the interest rate that the Fed has raised. And for whatever reason, that's not something they want to do. And part of their reasoning is that by raising interest rate, they're going to worsen the economy in Japan. And the Japan's economy has been, you know, in in the doldrums for a decade or two already. And it's all because they're tied to the U.S. dollar. Now, the other consequence, and it's a much bigger consequence, is that by doing what what the Biden administration has done, it's to decouple the the economies of China with respect to um, the U.S. And what that means is that China no longer have the motivation and the incentive to help prop up the dollar, which when it was one global trading community, it was in China's interest to make sure the dollar doesn't tank. And so they bought and kept the dollar reserves that they have. But now that the U.S. has declared war on China, declared cold war on China, the fact that they are separating the two economies, they're delinking the Chinese yuan to the dollar. The China, the Chinese banks are basically saying, why should we hold on to the dollar that we know is going to decline in value over the long term, even, even with higher interest rate in the short term? So increasingly, when it suits China, they will dump the dollar. They don't necessarily dump it overnight, and they don't necessarily dump it all at once. But one thing is for sure, they have no reason to hold on to the dollar. They will try to convert whatever dollar they have into other assets, um, like gold or property or equity or some real stuff, and not just the paper that it's printed on it. On the dollar. And I think China is projecting it, some kind of, to be quite frank, some kind of conflict coming up with the U.S. over Taiwan. I believe they're projecting that right now. I read that they're now doing these economic exercises in their country to see what would happen if the U.S. and its vassals, if the U.S. empire tried to do the same types of economic warfare that they're against Russia, if they would do that against China. And I think the other part of it is China's going to want to get their assets out of the West, they're going to want to get all any um, vulnerabilities or liabilities, the economic that they have out of the West, so that if and when they need to act in any manner they need to act towards Taiwan, that they won't have to worry about the economic backlash. Yeah, you're, you're right. And and it's, it's you know, as a result of what happened of the Ukraine war, China could see that um, the U.S. is determined to de-link uh, in this case, de-link Russia from the from the global, the Swiss system, payment system, to, to de-link the ruble to the dollar. Um, and China needs to be prepared to respond when the U.S. decides to um, apply the same kind of sanction against China. Now, hopefully, we will we have learned a lesson 
in what we try to do uh, to Russia because it, it backfired. You know, the ruble is, has strengthened because Russia has linked the value of the ruble to gold. They have linked the value of the ruble by insisting that you pay in ruble for their oil and natural gas. They are linking the value of the ruble not to the dollar, but to the real assets such as, uh, such as energy and such as agricultural products, such as fertilizer and so on. So the consequences of the value of ruble has gone up rather than down after the initial drop when when the U.S. first announced the sanction. Now, it would be stupid and, and very foolish to think that whatever impact the U.S. had on Russia would also work on China because it's going to backfire in, in spades. You know, the, the two linkages are so strong that uh, there's no way that U.S. can unilaterally uh, uh, sanction China and get away with it without any blowback. My feeling is, and if we have time to talk about it, the blowback will be many fold more hurtful to the U.S. than whatever it can do to China. Please go ahead and elaborate. And one of the questions I would ask to that point is, does some of that have to do with the manner in which the economies are managed? The, that the, that the, the Chinese government has a much greater planned economy than the United States does. And with that, that makes uh, China much more nimble and able to make adjustments uh, that the United States has more difficulty in making. Well, yeah, whether it's nimble or resilience or the fact that they are um, very much more invested in the in a complete economy. I mean, they they have a very strong manufacturing base. They're making things that they can sell to the world. They are a major trading partner for 120, 130 countries. Yeah, and, and they are much more important to those countries than the U.S. has been, or uh, in 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 the economic terms, in terms of global trading terms. So, U.S. really doesn't have much of a carrot incentive to get other countries to take their side of the of this economic warfare. Um, and so, consequently, uh, as U.S. try to isolate China, it will actually push a lot of these countries to the Chinese side to join the RCEP, to join the AIB, the investment uh, Infrastructure Investment Bank, to hang on to their trading relations uh, with China, to increase their holding of the renminbi, at the same time decrease their holding of the, of the dollar. So all that is going to come back and, and uh, hurt the U.S. In the meantime, the American consumer is going to face increasing prices and shortages because the dollar, as the dollar weakens, they're going to have to pay more and more for anything that they want to buy it, you know, in terms of the American consumer, in terms of strategic materials, in terms of uh, energy and, and so on. So it may sound good from a political point of view, but it doesn't make any sense, and it will come back and haunt the American economy. I think the other part, too, is that 
you know, China has the has the advantage of looking at the U.S.'s game plan. I mean, the, right now, China can look at the, what the U.S. is doing, look at what the neocons are doing in Ukraine, look at how they're working and, and, and understand we see exactly what you're going to do, you know, chess move for chess move. And, and, you know, if you've been recognizing the U.S. empire and the neocons, you understand they do the same thing over and over and over. And the less it works, the more they do it. So China has the advantage of seeing exactly what the game plan is going to be against them and preparing for it. George. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, the, the ultimate, I guess, ultimate proof in the pudding would be uh, a conflict that starts between China and Taiwan. Um, at, at this point, I don't quite foresee how that's going to happen unless somehow the U.S. can convince Taiwan to, to, start, to start the hostilities, to start the conflict. Because um, uh, China knows very well and understands fully the how Russia got talked into invading Ukraine, and uh, China is not about to repeat and and fall for the same ploy. There's a very interesting story. China a great leap closer to building a moon base. Beijing plans to launch three lunar probes to kickstart building a permanent lunar presence. That, to me, is an indication that China has a lot of very big plans on the drawing board and confronting the United States, as important as it is, is not prohibiting them or limiting them from their bigger bigger plans. Okay. Well, I think China's public policy has always been including inclusive of everybody. What they're trying to do, hopefully they can get everybody involved, everybody in the world involved, not playing the game of excluding certain countries like the U.S. has excluded China on their uh, space exploration. Um, So when they get their technology act together and set up the camp uh, on the moon, they will invite other nations to participate because the the principle is that whatever you learn from the space exploration should be for the benefit of the whole mankind. It shouldn't be for any one national interest. Of course, having said that, it goes without saying that if you are the first to be on the moon and you uncover precious minerals, you uncover uh, hidden water, and so on and so forth, you're going to have a a, a first-mover advantage in how to take advantage of those resources and uh, and commercialize it. But I think that the message that China is conveying is going to be we're different. We're not going to be, we're not going to play the number one hegemon and exclude certain countries because we don't like them or we don't believe they're with us. It's going to be for everybody, and even including the United States. Now, too bad Congressman Wolf, who um, made that legislation to exclude China, is not not around to see it. But it, this is another kind of blowback that he, I don't think he anticipated or expected. I'm sure he didn't think that China was going to catch up and surpass U.S. in terms of 
out of technology or space exploration. You know, as as we get out, I knew the United States was in trouble when China announced, probably now about two years ago, that they were able to communicate from the dark side of the moon. That, to me, spoke volumes. Well, uh, I think what China has done in on the moon has caught, um, certainly caught the West by surprise. Right. And uh, I would expect that there will be more surprises coming. It, it, it just simply says China is not to be underestimated. And you underestimate China at your own um, at your own um, at your own peril. Exactly. Yes. George Koo, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Thank you very much. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. A statement on Ukraine from the Black Liberation Movement. Dismantle NATO now. Resend the $16 billion U.S. allocations to the Ukraine war. U.S. imperialism is the main danger to peace, sovereignty, and justice for peoples all over the world. This is quite a statement that is really uh, quite a departure from the position taken by the so-called elite in leadership in the African-American community, or would Glenn Ford, the late Glenn Ford from Black Agenda Report, would call the Black Misleadership Class. What are we to make of this? Well, let's turn to our next guest. He's on the Africa team of the Black Alliance for Peace and coordinator of Black Alliance for Peace's U.S. Out of Africa Network, Tunde Osazua, as always, Tunde, welcome back. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be on the show. So the piece reads, we, the undersigned organizations and individuals of the Black Liberation Movement and the various mass organizations and movements fighting for justice inside the U.S., call on all peace-loving black, brown, and indigenous communities to condemn and oppose U.S. involvement in the Ukraine and across Europe through its various corporate and political interests and its military arm, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO. Tunde, I'll throw it to you. Uh, this is quite a statement at quite a time. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it is a powerful statement. Um, I think it speaks to the importance of uh, this moment, right? This is uh, a conflict uh, 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 that the U.S. has um, kind of, and the U.S. and NATO have been uh, uh, engineering, that they've been, um, you know, promoting. And, and uh, you know, just recently we, we heard about, you know, Joe Biden asking lawmakers in the U.S. for $33 billion worth of aid to, to support, uh, uh, you know, the continuance of this, of this war in, in, in Ukraine. Um, and I think, you know, that, that's, a, that's an astonishing number, right? Um, you know, that, that's on top of the $14 billion in money and weapons that's gone to Ukrainians. Uh, um, you know, in the, I guess, the, the two months or so since, since um, the, the beginning of this conflict, um, which, which, is, which is, you know, unprecedented. Only four countries have received more than $30 billion in lifetime aid from the U.S. And, you know, those, those are mostly sites of, you know, long-term U.S. conflicts, Iraq and Afghanistan. So I think, you know, this statement speaks to the crucial 
uh, uh, I guess, nature of this war, right? Like the importance of this um, uh, uh, aggression uh, to, to the U.S. and NATO as, as they try to maintain their, their full-spectrum dominance um, uh, around the world. And I think Russia uh, uh, is, is one of those sites where they're trying to, to suppress any sort of resistance to that dominance that, that um, the U.S. and NATO are, are expressing and, and want to continue. Um, so I, I, I see, I see it as, as, as a, a key time, right, where, where we speak out against these, these um, injustices, right, like that, that uh, $33 billion or $47 billion, if you want to add it up, that could have gone to, you know, um, the human rights violations or, or the needs of the people here in the U.S., right, where, um, you know, people are without health care, without food, without housing, um, without a right to, um, to peace. And so, yeah, I, I think this is very important. You know, one of the things you brought up in this, in this statement, and I think it's important, it's not specifically brought up, but it's implied, and that is, if you look at this conflict, the U.S. says, Joe Biden came out and said, the entire world supports us. Not a single African nation is on board with the U.S. Not a single of the Muslim Middle East nations are on board with the U.S. Not a single of the Latino, the indigenous people that have been so oppressed by the U.S. empire in Latin America are on board. But only a tiny few little colonies of the U.S. in Asia are on board. India is not on board. On and on. The people of color in throughout the world who have been colonized and brutalized by uh, the U.S. empire and various and sundry empires in Europe now are all looking at it saying, we, we, we're we not supporting you on this because this is what you do to us. At any rate, your thoughts on that? Absolutely. That's a great point. I mean, I think, you know, that there's uh, this, uh, I guess, effort on the path, on the part of corporate media to, to have uh, people in the U.S. show concern for the people of Ukraine. But, you know, we see that that concern for the people in Ukraine has to be added to, you know, for those in U- Iraq and Afghanistan, like you mentioned, and Syria, Yemen, Libya, you know what I'm saying, and Honduras and, and um, you know, Venezuela, like, like all, all these places where imperialist aggression is, is showing its face, right? This is just one of those instances, but there's kind of like a, a, a cloud of confusion right, that's settled on uh, the people of the U.S., right, where, you know, they're inundated by uh, imagery and, and messaging from, you know, the, the, the elites in, in our society that, you know, kind of feed this lust, this call for war, right, like this call for the um, showing up with the military-industrial complex that, you know, kind of, you know, funnels more m- money into their pockets, right, and uh, I, I think it really... Um, uh, speaks to the strength of, of U.S. propaganda in particular uh, because of this, you know, because of the, the, the lengths that this confusion has gone to. Uh, you know, we, we see, you know, Ukrainian flags all over uh, social media and, and a lot of public spaces as well. And I think, I, I think that, you know, just shows how, how um, effective their appeals to, you know, um, uh, the defense of, of white civilization and, and patriotism and you know, racial nationalism have gone, right? So I, I think for us in, in BAP and in the national, you know, black liberation movement, you know, we're, we're trying to show that there, there isn't confusion on, on our part, right? Like we stand with the people of the world who are, you know, struggling against, you know, U.S. imperialism, struggling against NATO aggression. Um, and, and so I think, like you said, we have to expand our, our focus to, uh, beyond Ukraine to, you know, all those under the assault. Of of, of of this enemy of, of the people, right? And and that could include the folks of us, the, uh, those of us here in the U.S. as well, 
who are, you know, um, under assault, right, by, by uh, colonial forces. So I, I think that's, that's a great point you made. I think I counted about 14 organizations that co-signed this, uh, this statement. Talk about what it took to get a statement like this signed because, A, getting it written, then B, having it edited and then signed on by all of these various organizations is not an easy task. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, with coalition work, if, if you know, anyone has participated in, and worked uh, among coalitions of various organizations, there's a lot of struggle that takes place, right? Like principal struggle around issues like this. There are a number of conversations and, you know, a number of different revisions of the statement and, and arguments, right? Like, you know, full-blown, uh, 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 I guess, um, uh, uh, I guess, uh, disagreements that, that took place over listers, over the phone, over Zoom calls. But, I mean, I think, you know, uh, eventually we settled on an anti-imperialist line that really spoke to um, the crux of this issue, right? And so I think, you know, after all of that principled struggle, we were able to come to an agreement. Right. And, and brought together, uh, like you were saying, uh, you know, organizations and individuals uh, uh, within this black liberation movement. Right. Like mass organizations, some of the uh, uh, most prominent ones, I guess, within within this this uh, area, this space. Um, and so I, I think, you know, like like you were saying, right, like there's orgs like Cooperation Jackson and the spirit of Mandela and, um, you know, uh, the New African People's Organization. Like th- these are. Uh, uh, significant orgs that with, and some of them with like some storied histories. And so I, I think, you know, it, it, uh, it, it really took looking at the root of the issue, looking at the history, like starting with, um, you know, the, 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 maybe the coup in 2013, 2014, but even, maybe even going back to, you know, 1999, um, you know, when, uh, uh, that, that there, there was the initial, uh, uh I guess, aggression against uh, uh, Russia, right? Like NATO's expansion becoming the security concern. Um, and, and, you know, when Bill Clinton inaugurated the pro- official process for growing NATO's membership, I think it just took like some political education amongst, you know, the different forces and, and, you know, principles struggle to really get things together. And I, I think it's a powerful, you know, uh, uh, statement, a powerful showing of, of uh, uh, opposition to, to, you know, the imperialist designs on you know, uh, this, this uh, Ukraine and, and Russia and Eastern Europe, but then also, you know, I guess more broadly. So I, I'm, I'm glad this, this principal struggle took place because that's how we grow. You know, another thing I think that is important for us to learn from this and to, to get from this conflict is, you know, President Joe Biden said that one of the reasons that he ran was Charlottesville, that when he saw, you know, the neo-Nazis and the white supremacists in Charlottesville, that he was inspired to run. However, in Ukraine, there is a str- very powerful element of literal, unabashed, not neo-Nazis, that would imply new, of Nazis, of people who are goose-stepping, they're yelling Seagull all over the place, they got Nazi tattoos literally on their body, they celebrate the birthdays of Nazi collaborators, and that same Joe Biden is telling us that we must spend tens of billions of dollars to arm these people and to support these people. And we have people who call themselves members of the Democratic Party who are arguing that they're opposed to racism going around with the flags and the, uh, you know, insignia of these Nazi organizations. Your thoughts on the contradiction here? Absolutely. I mean, we see like the resurgence and celebration of Nazism in Ukraine and even here in the U.S. and Canada where there's, you know, a growing Nazi movement. 
that, that really just shows the global consolidation uh, of, of white supremacy, right, as, as part of this imperialist project. So, you know, we, we see it with, you know, appeal, appeals to civilized nations and peoples of white, you know, countries and, and the European world as uh, part of that, right? Like, and, and we saw that with, through some of the news coverage um, uh, and, and, like, how they spoke about these are Europeans that are facing war. Uh, and we, we as in the Black Alliance of Peace, I'll speak for us in particular, you know, for us, peace is, is um, not the absence of conflict, but, you know, the achievement through popular struggle and self-defense uh, uh, of a world liberated from imperialism and militarism, right, of un- uh, from unjust war and patriarchy and white supremacy, right? So, you know, we, we see the struggle against Nazism as part of our struggle for, for peace, right, our struggle for liberation, right? So we, we think you know, that means that dismantling the military-industrial complex that is being fed by, you know, the tens of billions, uh, it will be $47 billion if, if, you know, Biden gets his way with this $33 billion request, right? Like, we, we see that uh, uh, to, to fight this, you know, resurgence of Nazism, we need to, uh, um, you know, dismantle these, these uh, uh, I guess, forces, these riotous forces, and then reinvest that money into, you know, education, health, you know, child care, housing, and the battle against climate change, right? We need to dismantle NATO because that's the white supremacist structure that's in, in line, like you're saying, with these Nazi, Nazi forces. And, and, you know, we see the need to dismantle NATO as tied to the need to abolish police because both of those serve the interests of capital and empire at the expense of the global working classes. So we're, we're you know, all, uh, all about, you know, that anti-fascist struggle uh, uh, to end uh, uh, Nazism and white supremacy, and to end NATO and uh, the U.S.-EU-NATO, I guess, access to domination. That, that's our strategic focus in back. And so we, we see that as, you know, intimately connected with, with the rise of Nazism, you know, their strength. So that, that's kind of how we look at things. Conspicuously absent from the list of organizations on your uh, statement, uh, the Congressional Black Caucus and the NAACP. Yeah. Oh, and National Action Network. Yeah, um, those are some some forces that we we see as uh, our place to, to struggle with them and point out the contradictions, right? Like they have some element of uh, a connection. They they represent, you know, our uh, uh, like the 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 misleaders, we would say, right? Like these these are you know folks with connections to, to Congress, the, the legislative halls, and uh, uh, you know we we see them as you know kind of. Uh, uh, the, the, the black misleadership exactly. class. Exactly. It's Glenn Ford and, and Bruce Dixon spoke to so well, right? And so we see this struggle against them is paramount, right? Like they are kind of uh, uh, the first line uh, of, of defense in some ways for, for uh, the, the folks that are in charge, right? So we, we, we understand that, you know, we can we can try and reach out to them. We can try and struggle with them. But ultimately, it's, it's important for us to understand who our enemies are and who our friends are. And I think that's okay. key. Tunde Osazua, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. It's been reported that Israeli forces storm Al-Aska Mosque as hundreds of settlers gather. 16 Palestinians injured and about 50 males, including the elderly and children, arrested and escorted out of the compound. At least 600 settlers raided the compound through the Moroccan gate earlier today between 7 a.m. and 11 a.m. More were expected between 1.30 and 2 I'm sorry, 1.30 and 2.30. How significant is this? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a broadcaster, analyst, and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon, Laith Marouf. As always, Laith, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So they're described as settler incursions under police protection into the mosque compound resumed after a 10-day pause during the last days of Ramadan, during which there were heightened tensions. Uh, What's going on here, Laith, and why? Well, it seems that uh, the Zionist colonists want to provoke uh, something uh, in Palestine. And and as we see today, these hundreds of colonists uh, attempting to breach the uh, mosque and raise the Israeli flag. This comes after uh, two days of multiple speeches by Palestinian resistance groups warning uh, the Zionists that if there is any desecration of the holy site, the the, the gates of hell will open. And um, it's amazing because, of course, we saw the Zionist military forces today uh, attacking the worshippers, as you mentioned, and uh, destroying um, some of the glass facade of the pulpit inside the Aqsa Mosque, uh, the pulpit of Saladin, the defeater of the Crusaders. And uh, there was images that were amazing at the same time, that contradiction, because when the Zionist colonists attempted to raise the Israeli flag on the, um, the grounds of the Holy Sanctuary, uh, Zionist police jumped and basically tackled the flags down. They were so scared of the outcome if these colonists are uh, able to do uh, what they intended to do and how the Palestinian resistance will respond. And of course, uh, the whole region right now is a tinderbox uh, and a trigger in Palestine uh, could see uh, swaths of tens of thousands of kilometers uh, engulfed in war from Yemen all the way to Syria. Um, it's reported in uh, the Tasnim News Agency is reporting that a Israeli law, law, a lawmaker, Tama bin Giver, entered the Al-Aqsa Mosque during a speech. He called for the regime t- uh, to change the status quo of the holy site by constructing Jewish synagogues and temples there. I have heard that there is an organization and a movement who want to completely convert the mosque over to a Jewish temple. But what do you know about that organization and that movement? I mean, this is a um, end-of-days movement that uh, has taken hold of actually most of the um, organizations that, uh, you know, do the services around Jewish sites in Jerusalem. So when you actually enter the quote-unquote Wailing Wall area, you will see uh, this organization, the Temple Mount uh, Rebuilding Organization, 
um, uh, advertising everywhere. They're taking, they're they're in control of the entrance and exit. They're preaching their Armageddon um, version of what they consider Judaism. Of course, it's a perversion that that uh, uh, that is a cultist. And uh, and these people are are really deep in in the government and in control of the municipality even of Jerusalem. And what we see here is the clash between these organizations that brought the government that is in power right now into uh, office and that government trying to mitigate their damage as it continues to project uh, a, a veneer of strength against the, the Arab uh, population. And so we will, uh, th- this, this conflict within the Zionists is, is what is instigating this. And um, they are now going to be able to hold their self back and uh, they will continue to do uh, actions that are lunatic actions, as we see, uh, that could trigger regional war. The U.S. Senate passes a non-binding motion barring Biden from removing the IRGC as a terror group. This purely symbolic motion, which garnered significant support from Democrats, is a troubling sign for the U.S. administration as it tries to break a nearly two-month stalemate in talks with Iran to revive the nuclear deal. Uh, Your thoughts on this, Laith? I mean, we've talked about this multiple times over the last uh, few months on the show, and it's amazing to see how uh, much of what I pointed out is, is unfolding. The United States... Um, administration knows that it cannot uh, guarantee itself um, staying in power first off in the next two years. It cannot uh, force the Congress uh, and the Senate to uh, ratify any agreement with Iran. Therefore, all we see, we've seen over the last few months is a delay tactic by the American administration. Um, in the last uh, week, we saw all the parties in the negotiations saying that everything has been agreed to. All that is missing is the signatory from uh, the American side. And that is not going to happen as we see these, this motion being passed as a warning to the Biden administration by the Congress that even if they try to return in any way, either to the old deal or sign a new deal and or lift some of the sanctions, that the Congress will refuse these actions. And therefore, the Iranians are uh, have to be very careful right now and, and prepare themselves for the worst case scenario. You know, I think it also shows the instability of the U.S. empire in that there are various forces. They know that they, they're going to need access to Iranian energy, Iranian oil, possibly gas, but at least Iranian oil to stabilize the prices on the market. They know they want to access to Venezuelan oil due to, the again, the instability in the oil market. However, there's even more instability within the governing um, bodies of the U.S. empire and it seems to me that whoever's in charge of the of the, of this empire whoever's leading can no longer get any deals with any other countries because no matter what they try to do there are going to be factions within the empire that are going to oppose it and that that have the um that, that have the wherewithal to thwart things in the in throughout in the congress your thoughts yeah i mean i'm glad you brought this up and and really this is an indication of uh the fact that the the elite in the imperial order 
have no way out. It's not it's not only it may look like it's um, irrational, which it is in a way, the actions of the empire, uh, as you pointed out, of, of on the one hand sanctioning these countries and on the other needing them their oil to be able to sanction Russia, for instance. Um, and that shows you that they are, the tactical options available in front of them to reach their strategic goal of being the imperial hegemon are all bad options. It's not like that they they can't think of options. It's the fact is that there is no options in front of them. And any option that they are taking uh, is only harming them further. Uh, but although if they don't take any action, it's uh, it's also going to uh, accelerate the decline. So the um, the fact that they have no options is making them take these uh, uh, options that look to all of us from the outside as irrational. But once you the lay down what is available as options to the United States to continue to be the hegemon or for the Zionists to continue this uh, colony in Palestine, you realize that they actually all their options are worse than each other. And uh, to that point, according to Mondo Weiss, activist donor Chaim Seban lays down red lines for Democrats don't undermine relationship with Israel. Aided by mega donor Chaim Seban, APAC has raised nearly $16 million in three months to take on Democratic candidates who might, quote unquote, undermine the relationship with Israel. What I find interesting is it states that this is a battle between the Democratic establishment and the grassroots, the Democratic base, doesn't think the Israel relationship is at all important. Uh, but all but uh, the elite leadership do. Your thoughts, Leith Maruf? Yes, and this is where the uh, propaganda of the Democratic Party about human rights and equality and and intersectionality, quote unquote. Uh, ends in, uh, in in the democratic process within this democratic party, and as we saw over the last decade, you know what happened to um, um, was Bernie Sanders, and and what happened to all uh, other uh, candidates that may stray from the main line uh, a few inches here and there, and how they are uh, dealt with within the establishment. So uh, look, truly. The United States cannot continue as an empire without the control of uh, Palestine and, and the continuation of the uh, Jewish white supremacist colony, the Zionist colony. And the therefore, the leadership of the Democrats, uh, they really don't need that money from Ham, Hayam Seban because they will do it without him giving the money. It's, it's hilarious for me sometimes, you know, to see how much money uh, the Zionist lobby throws into the politics of the United States, because every action that they're asking the elite in the United States to do, those elite will do willingly without being paid for, because that's their existence. Uh, you know, I think it also goes to show this, and that more and more we see, you know, the term uniparty is used, in that um, when it comes to certain things, to a number of things, particularly all things foreign policy, the um, Republican and Democratic Party will give the illusion of arguing against each other. But it's it's generally this. 
the Hawks versus the Ultra Hawks. And whoever's not in power is the Ultra Hawks. Whoever's not in power says you're not being tough enough. And so it's just, it, it appears to be an illusion of a two-party system, but, but certainly when it comes to foreign policy, there's one party. Oh, it's, it's definitely the greatest show on earth, uh, The this democratic quote-unquote process within the United States. It's like there's... It's a reality show versus uh, slashed with uh, tragic comedy, <laughs> slashed with genocidal, I don't know, uh, uh, porn. You know, it's, it's, un- it's unbelievable. Uh, and it's, it's also clear when you look at the, what the American public right now is in consuming in terms of media and or their involvement in the quote-unquote democratic process, you know that the American public themselves know that there is no such thing as democracy, that they are just participating in the biggest Hollywood uh, movie, ongoing, nonstop uh, television series that keeps being renewed every year. So as we opened with the discussion about uh, the Senate passing this this non-binding deal, there's a piece, U.S. prepares for nuclear compliance without return to Iran deal. The U.S. has decided that they likely won't be making a deal, but will just move back into compliance as though there is. Oh, it's hilarious because, uh, you know, if they want to return to the old deal without signing onto it again, and just lift these sanctions, already we saw the checkmate coming from the Congress saying that's not going to happen. So what what we see constantly is this continuous flip-flopping propaganda from the United States about it being solidly against uh, the increased power of Iran. And on the other hand, it says it wants to continue uh, to, to sign on to a new deal. And as we see right now, in the next few days, this will all end, and this is coming at the same time as uh, the elections in Lebanon. This is coming at the same time as the end of the ceasefire in Yemen. This is coming at the same time as as things are coming into head in Syria and Iraq. And uh, all of these battlefields are going to, uh, in front of our eyes, become one battlefield. Laith Marouf, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate that analysis And we look forward to having you back. You have a great evening. You too. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nix. Thank you, Wilmer. Consortium News has a great piece by Craig Murray entitled Donziger, A Tale of Our Times. This case shows how we are all, in a sense, the prisoners of corporations which dictate the terms on which we live, work, and share knowledge. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's the national organizer with Action for Assange, Steve Poikinen. Steve, as always, welcome back. Thank you, Wilmer. It's good to be here. So Texaco operations in Ecuador from 1962 to 94 dumped 7 billion liters of wastewater heavily contaminated with oil and other chemicals into the Amazon rainforest, plus over 650,000 barrels 
of crude oil cost of the pollution to the inhabitants of the Amazon was incalculable in simple monetary terms. We know what Don Zinger did uh, in terms of suing Texaco for this. He then found himself under home detention. Your thoughts on this? And he has now since been released as of last week. Steve Poikinen. I'm, this is this is essentially what happened to Stephen Donzinger is what the blueprints were in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, where you would have a corporate court that would over override any nation state's jurisdiction and decide the fate of any sort of environmental or corporate malfeasance suit. It effectively takes the, the it effectively renders uh, any country's constitution or or governing document meaningless um <clears throat> the parallels between what happened to Stephen Donzinger what's happening to Julian Assange the um the connection with the US and specifically the central intelligence agency's grip on the government of Ecuador uh, both in the past under Lenin Moreno and trying to go forward into the the future is just mind-boggling and this is another one of those cases that you would think would be uh, a galvanizing moment for people who are already losing confidence in their institutions to be like, hey, uh, what do you mean Chevron gets to be the judge? What do you mean Chevron gets to be the prosecutor? No, we've got to put a stop to this. Um, but because they can sweep it under the rug and wave a bunch of distractions in front of people, it's us talking about it. You know, I think this is a particularly good article here. It's by Craig Murray, Donziger, A Tale for Our Times in uh, the beleaguered and attacked recently consortium news. I think it's really good because it talks about the history of um, these corporate oil giants in Ecuador, how they pretty much ran the country, controlled the um, the judiciary and political systems. And then they come here and Stephen Donziger leaves there, comes home, and you get the exact same thing here where Chevron is able to control the judiciary here and use a um, an unreasonable corporate-owned system in the same way that they did. So their main export when he got there was bananas. It was a banana republic. And now it's clear with what happened to Stephen Donziger and how um, Chevron was able to utilize the United States political system and, and judiciary system for lawfare that we've become that same ba- banana republic, Steve. Well, and not only Ecuador, but in the article, they also talk about some African countries that uh, have fallen victim to this as well. Yeah, I mean, Shell, uh, Shell Oil is the example that Craig Murray uses um, in Nigeria, and, and I mean, I believe they're still seeing the, they're still trying to get some sort of recompense uh, out of Shell. What's really I, I know, horrifying about uh, the Donzinger case is that the whole reason. The the it, the jurisdiction wound up in Ecuador for the original cases because the U.S. said no, we're we're not going to touch it. We've got hands off. And then when Chevron needs the U.S. and needs a judge in their pocket, like Judge Kaplan, whom they had, uh, then Kaplan can go, oh yeah, yeah, no, you can't introduce any of the stuff from the the Ecuadorian court case because that's not in our jurisdiction. However. 
Chevron gets to show a judgment that a judge that they bought issued saying they don't have to have any liability. And in fact, now we've got one of their guys who says you bribed a judge. And that's what started the whole debacle and him winding up on house arrest. RT has a piece. U.S. is world's greatest propagator of disinformation. Uh, Washington has no right to tell its citizens what the truth is, according to Senator Rand Paul. Your thoughts, Steve Poikinen. The Pauls are a fantastic family because no matter what, they're at least right twice a day. Now, I, I, will, uh, I will cede that Rand is the lesser Paul, um, but, uh, but, oh, man, does he have some, some – uh, whoever is his writer is great. Like, he needs to keep that guy because Rand Paul has been on fire for the last couple of years in these these sort of, like, captured moments. Um, and he's correct. He's 100% correct. In the first place, Alejandro Mayorkas needs to be grilled about this. This is something that they sort of got caught out at after they'd already established this, which kind of begs the question – Shouldn't Rand Paul have known about it before the newspaper did as a, a sitting senator? Um, but in terms of, of how our propaganda works, he is correct. Uh, he, he sat there and he just ran through some of the highlights of the last you know 40 or 50 years of, of just bold-faced lies the government told the people and all of the destruction that came from it. And Mayorkas, of course, just kind of shrugs it off. Like, well, we're not really going after American citizens in this department anyway, wink, wink. So none of that really matters. You know, here is the most interesting part that I look, that Rand Paul unknowingly makes his own point, And let me explain. He says you can't even agree if it was disinformation that the Russians fed information to the Steele dossier. We now know that the Steele dossier came from a guy named Igor, Igor Dashinko, who worked with Fiona Hill at Brookings Institution. And he got it from a guy by the name of Charles Dolan, who was a Clinton operative. So we now know it didn't come from the Russians. The Clintons paid for the Steele dossier and they had one of their operatives feed information for the Steele dossier. I saw, say all that to say this. Even he's so bamboozled that he doesn't even know that he's given disinformation and trying to fight disinformation. What kind of ungodly rabbit hole have we fallen into, Steve? The, we're, we're through the looking glass. We are. We're, we're all the way in Wonderland, up and down, cats are merry and dogs. We live in a cartoon. We do. This, I mean, the, the, okay, so in the first place, the woman that they have running this division that belongs in dinner theater, and I, I hope she... You know, I hope she does that. I, I do. Like, obviously, this is going to be a high-stress position, and, and she, you know, needs to, to hit her stride between 4 p.m. and 6 p.m., like, at medieval times. I think it would be great that way. But, but I, if, the, if the government puts itself in charge of reality, then reality is going to be changing in a moment-by-moment basis. And if you question the previous reality, you're going to be considered some sort of, of treasonous terrorist, something like that. Um, and that is the rabbit hole that we're going down, where, where the only thing that is real is what the state says, 
when the state says it, regardless of what the state said yesterday. Paul also mentioned George W. Bush and the weapons of mass destruction, referring to American claims that Hussein, Saddam Hussein's regime had been in possession of them. Rand Paul is, is going all out on this, and unfortunately, he's out there by himself. Yeah, I mean, you would think that, that Thomas Massey would be there with him, too. I realize he's a representative. He's not in the same committee hearing and all that kind of stuff. But I, there is no interest on the quote-unquote left or the Democratic Party to to ask questions. There is no interest in anything other than furthering the neoliberal empire at all costs. We wouldn't be, you know, we, we wouldn't be to the point, gentlemen, to where the other day Sergey Lavrov came out and said, we're at war with NATO. I think it was last night. NATO's at war with us, so by default, we're at war with NATO, is what he said. But, I mean, you don't get to that point unless you've got a complicit governing body who's just willing to go along with whatever as long as it it furthers the agenda of complete and total world domination. And to make your point, a number of American media members went after him for saying it was a proxy war. And the, the New York Times had just run an article that said it's a proxy war. So it's exactly what you're saying. And that being said, let's move on to one further. I was I've been suspended off of Facebook for 30 days. Why? Because I shared an article from NBC News that says German TV shows Nazi symbols on helmets of Ukraine soldiers. And it has a picture of soldiers in Ukraine. One of them's got the crooked cross and the other guy's got the SS Runes or whatever it's called of, of, of Hitler's infamous black uniformed elite corps. And I shared it. I shared the pictures. I shared it. Okay, this is the NBC News article. And basically, they sent me something that says, you know, you are um, not within the rules and this is unacceptable. This is not allowed. You're suspended for 30 days for sharing NBC News articles and pictures right out of the NBC News article. I'm suspended, but they haven't suspended uh, NBC News. But before you respond, Steve, here's the interesting element. This is a story from 2014 that— NBC ran. So it also shows how the whole U.S. perception or mindset towards Ukraine has shifted over the last eight years. I can't tell you how many Twitter accounts I have seen get taken out over the last two months for doing just that, for compiling how the U.S. media used to report on. Ukraine and how the West used to report on Ukraine. Guardian headlines, Telegraph headlines, New York Times, Washington Post, you name it. Nazis, 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 Nazis. It was Nazi bingo in the uh, in the Western press for years. And then 2019 happened. And Kolomoisky and a number of other uh, high-profile oligarchs had their little coked-out midget puppet installed in Zelensky. And all of the reporting changed. And now here we are. You know what? 2019, now that I think of it, was when the Rand Corporation issued that paper on how to destabilize Russia by going through Ukraine. And then all of a sudden the press coverage changed. Now, now that's uh, one heck of a coincidence, you guys. That is one heck of a coincidence. And so now, and then and, and you follow that with the more recent NBC.com story that says the United States is using unproven intel as a way to throw Russia off the scent. 
So Garland posts a 2014 story showing Nazis in Ukraine. Then about two weeks ago, NBC runs a dot com runs a story that basically saying the United States government is lying to American citizens. But it's the noble lie in order to throw Vladimir Putin off the trail. Okay, well, I I mean, really, Wilmer, if you don't lie constantly to your people, then you're going to give your enemy the idea that it might be able to get away with something. And and it's only through constant fabrication that we can arrive at the truth. Right. I think that's that's this is (laughs) Orwellian doesn't even describe it. It's become kind of cliche at this point. But this is exactly where we are. We have a, a flipping ministry of truth. I don't, you know, I, I don't know what else to say about that. We're, we are. Dude. This is this is Wonderland fully. We have a ministry of truth whose director's job has been in previous positions to tell lies. Steve Poikinen, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you, gentlemen. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Responsible Statecraft has a piece entitled, Strong Men Coups Corruption Drive Horn of Africa to the Brink. Alex DeWall writes, The world is watching while the three largest countries on the Horn of Africa, Ethiopia, Somalia, and Sudan, teeter on the brink of a new round of violence, deeper and even more destructive than the last few years. What are we to make of this? Because anytime we talk about responsible statecraft, you always gotta unpack the knapsack. Let's turn to our next (laughs) guest. He's the U.S. correspondent to the Southern African Times, as well as the Herald newspaper in Zimbabwe. He's the external relations officer of the Zimbabwe-Cuba Friendship Association. Obi Igbuna, as always, Obi, welcome back. Um, Thank you. Um, How are you doing today? We're well. We're well. Thank you very much. So, As with most pieces in Responsible Statecraft, there are tremendous holes in their analysis. They write, crisis has become so normalized that it can be hard to distinguish between the standard week-to-week turbulence of a political system in which alliances are bargained in an ever-volatile bazaar and more profound changes in the structure of political economies. They make this sound as though it is inherent in the nature of these countries, they never really discuss the United States involvement in the machinations that create unrest, foment unrest and coups and perpetuate it. I want to begin. Well, first of all, thank you. And um, to, to, to throw a monkey wrench in this conversation, using something else as a backdrop, let us thank um, the government of Russia for sending 19 metric tons of wheat to Cuba while the United States maintains a blockade on Cuba. So let us begin there. 
However, um, just bringing it back to Africa, though, I'm reminded of a 2003 private one-hour meeting that I had with the former um, and now late Pan-African icon and giant and former president of the Republic of Zimbabwe, um, His Excellency Robert Gabriel Mugabe. And he said his only concern about U.S.-born Africans is they continue to accept this adventurous and romantic point of view in terms of coups and assassinations and the, on the African continent in particular. He said they put so much emphasis on the coup, on the assassination, at the expense of ignoring the dynamics that create the climate and atmosphere for a coup and assassination to prevail. This is what he told us in a private um, one-hour meeting. So when you look at that and you understand that categorically, in the opinion of many, North Africa is the most isolated part of Africa because the colonialist and imperialist narrative is that North Africa is really not a part of the African continent. West Africa is the most corrupt part of Africa, governmentally speaking. Southern Africa is the most militant. So East Africa is the most chaotic. So when you um, look at that from that context, then what they're talking about is uh, no surprise. But I think that um, what the issue here is, um, this is smokescreen 101, because in the same way that Arab Spring, we now know, was a smokescreen where the overall objective, where they were, where people were covering dynamics all over that region, the number one goal was to assassinate Muammar Gaddafi and ensure that he died in the pool of his own blood. So we sincerely believe that while they talk about East Africa, their main focus is to get bring about regime change in Eritrea and bring about regime change in Ethiopia because the current Ethiopian government will not compromise on this peace accord. And that is and because that right there is the alternative to the instability. And what it also represents is everyday people reaching the logical conclusion that governments in Africa can resolve their own internal differences without their former colonizers or imperialist forces being involved in the dialogues and the exchanges. Well, you know, even the second article that we had wanted to discuss in Responsible Statecraft, Washington's military first approach is bearing rotten fruit in the Sahel, but a a potential opening to resolve local conflicts in Burkina Faso could provide a, a model to turn U.S. security assistance on its head. It still implies that somehow the United States can be the solution, part of a solution to the problems in Africa. It implies that there is some goodwill on behalf of the U.S. empire towards Africans, when, as you said, it's all a smoke screen for control and for bloody, vicious control and for the theft of resources. I, I wanted to add one sentence from this article to, to, to support Garland's point. The regional conflict in the Sahel over the last 10 years has displaced two and a half million people, left thousands more killed, maimed, and traumatized by non-state and state violence against civilians. But it doesn't really get to the point of what's behind, to your earlier point, uh, Obi, it doesn't get to what's behind all of that. Go ahead. Um, 
They they bring up they bring up the Tigrayans who backed the Tigrayans. Didn't didn't in a conversation last year at you guys' favorite place, the U.S. Institute of Peace, didn't 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 Congresswoman Karen Bass, now aspiring mayoral candidate for Los Angeles, didn't she say that some Ethiopians came to her and asked for U.S. military intervention? Yes, sir, she did. She did say that. And the president of the DRC responded by saying, you didn't share this with us. But the point is, she know, and this is the same woman who was part of a delegation who went to Ethiopia and Eritrea in 2018 to celebrate their peace accord. So she didn't bring up the peace accord at all. She chose to bring up a random meeting of random Ethiopians who asked for U.S. military intervention. The U.S. has a problem because it's about, it's about a political culture. Because one of the things we know, and once again, the, this is going to become not just gospel, but prophecy. The sentence from President Obama's first inaugural speech he said the might of our military must be matched by the strength of our diplomacy, which means if we cannot assassinate you, i.e. Patrice Lumumba, i.e. Pio Pinto, i.e. Malcolm X, Medgar Evers, Dr. King, we will starve you to death. Blockade on Cuba, sanctions on Zimbabwe, sanctions on Eritrea, sanctions on Venezuela. That's what it means. Their preference is to bomb you off the face of the earth if they can get away with it. Libya for seven months in a row, 11 years ago. But if it is up to us, if we're reduced to starving your people to death, to destroying your social infrastructure, even in countries where the, attribute, the main attributes are the social process, so in Zimbabwe, you're compromising a country where the educational system bears fruit, 97% people literate. Uh, in Cuba, they produced uh, four, the only vaccine manufacturer in Latin America have produced four vaccinations during the corona pandemic, but don't have the syringes for this vaccination. So this is what they prefer. So whichever way for them, they will do it. And I think in terms internally, those of us who are born in the United States, our people who are born in the United States, look at the institutions that you have at your disposal and their relationship to this. Howard University needs to take a long, hard look at the Ralph Bunch Center, because it is in that building that these issues are promoted as just causes. To paraphrase Colin Powell's name, for his assault mission in Panama against the Africans there. So this is very important. So their main concern in East Africa, and, it go, and then why is Eritrea such a target? It's not just because of this peace accord. This is the only country in Africa that has free education and free health care at the moment. But before the Bolivarian Alliance for our Americas, said the United States Agency for International Development should not be welcome anywhere in the Americas. Before Vladimir Putin expelled the United States Agency for International Development from Russia, Isaias Afwerki, His Excellency of Eritrea, was the first one to do it. What does that say? At a moment where Africa, since the 1950s, 
has received, uh, they say, somewhere in the neighborhood of $7 trillion in aid, humanitarian aid, yet 409 million people on the continent today live on a $1.90 a day or less. To make that uh, comprehensible for Africans in the United States, you can wash your clothes at a laundromat, but you can't dry them. You can get on the subway, but you got to jump the rail to get off and risk getting shot by the police. That's what's going on in Africa. Of the 25 nations that meet the extreme poverty category, 22 are in Africa. Of the 53 countries that have what the United Nations call least developed country status, where you surrender your economy to the United Nations, 37 of those countries are African. And they're creating this smokescreen because they want to dismantle the Eritrean government, which has so much promise and so much potential, diplomatically, educationally, and medically. Because when they begin to talk about human rights and they begin to talk about stability or lack thereof, they never mention countries' attributes. The same way that when they used to say, as this year marks the 50th anniversary of his passing, that great champion for humanity, Osajiko Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, didn't they used to say that he had this romantic view of a united Africa and he was negligent in the affairs of Ghana? But then we find out he built 68 factories in nine years, a tire factory, a rubber factory, a manganese factory, a cocoa factory. Queen Elizabeth said the roads of Ghana were better than the roads of London. One month before his overthrow, he produced the first hydroelectrical dam on the African continent, the Akasambo, that not only kept electricity for all of Ghana, but had half of Benin and half of Togo with their lights on. This is what they say. And then when they have these other uh, propaganda campaigns like Parade Magazine publishes the annual World's Worst Dictator List, and they put certain people on there. But this shows their vulnerability because we would be willing to compare the policies of the governments they hate in Africa, the governments they hate in the Caribbean, the governments they hate in Latin America, to the ones that they defend. Anytime they want to have their conversation and they can go and get anybody from the U.S. Africa desk. They can go and get anybody from the U.S. Institute of Peace. They can go and get anybody from the National Democratic Institute, the International Republican Institute, the National Endowment for Democracy. They can go and get Gregory Simpkins on the he's the main staff director on the U.S. Africa um, and Global Health Committee of the U.S. Congress. Anyone who wants to justify their walk, anyone who wants to justify their journey, anyone who wants to justify their path, because this goes beyond the lovers' quarrel between Democrats and Republicans. And we know they go back and forth, because at the moment, President Biden is trying to bring about regime change in Mozambique, in Zimbabwe, in Eritrea, on the African continent. But the whole world is turning, but they're making you focus on Russia. Do they want to compare Vladimir Putin's Africa policy to Joe Biden's Africa policy? When would they like to do that? So it's just a, so we appreciate the fact that responsible statecraft or foreign policy or The Economist magazine that has an intelligence unit. So these are has been intelligence agents with a propensity for the pen who write for their magazine, 
Who would listen to an intelligence agent that worked for Israeli intelligence or U.S. intelligence or uh, French intelligence or German intelligence write about Africa, write about the Caribbean, write about Latin America? That's worse than rolling loaded dice in Atlantic City or Las Vegas. But some people just do it anyway. It's up to you, though, at this point. So thank you guys very much. Obi Igbuna, as always, thank you. We look forward to having you back. Okay. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Black Agenda Report has a piece entitled The Poor People's Campaign and the Moral Dilemma of Liberalism. The demands for justice at home and abroad must not be sacrificed on the altar of what is called pragmatism. The false choices presented by liberalism can can undermine the movement altogether. And as I have said a number of times, uh, you can't negotiate for political expediency on the front end and then try to claim the moral high ground on the back end. For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's the national organizer for the Black Alliance for Peace and an editor and contributing columnist for the Black Agenda Report. He serves on the executive committee of the U.S. Peace Council and leadership body of the U.S.-based United National Anti-War Coalition and the steering committee for the Black is Back Coalition and he's the author of this piece, Jamu Baraka, as always, sir. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. You write, in an attempt to make a point about the flawed priorities of the duopoly, Dr. Jerome Barber wrote in an email to the Movement family on Saturday, April 30, that despite the political gridlock on Capitol Hill, Republicans and Democrats have acted swiftly to approve historic military aid to Ukraine. In the face of such a moral imperative, it would be anathema for either party to ask, how are we going to pay for it? He then went on to suggest that the moral clarity that informed the decision to provide military support to Ukraine was contradicted by the lack of moral clarity or support for addressing the pressing needs of the poor. Ajamu, how can there be a moral imperative for what a lot of us see as an immoral effort? Well, that's really uh, Dr. William Barber's moral dilemma, that he wants to embrace the uh, nonviolent philosophy uh, and political uh, leadership of a Dr. King and embrace uh, one aspect of Dr. King's program, which was the uh, Poor People's Campaign, while uh, seemingly rejecting or at least marginalizing the other more, even more important element of Dr. King's work during his last year, and that is his moral stand against war, against specifically the conflict in Vietnam. Uh, so I make the argument that unfortunately in attempting to make a political point, uh, Dr. Barber, uh, Reverend Barber has sort of muddied up 
the the his 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 moral stand that Dr. Barber seems not to understand that basically he has given uh, some moral authority to a, an immoral position that is a moral authority in support of of more war in Ukraine of providing arms to the Ukrainians that seems to me to take him out of the uh, of the framework of the work of Dr. Martin Luther King. Uh, let me just quickly say, I think I said in the open, Jerome Barber, he was a classmate of mine <laughs> at Hampton. We're talking about <laughs> Reverend William Barber. Sorry, Jerome. <laughs> you know, the other thing I think that is important that I see in this piece is, sadly, in America, so many people, even people of in positions of authority, have barely a superficial understanding of the issues upon which they comment. The, just within the last few days, the Pope came out with at least a fairly reasonable understanding of the circumstances in Eastern Europe and said, well, and I paraphrase, you know, to some extent, NATO barking at Russia's door caused this problem. It doesn't, it's not, this is not real complicated. If you look at the history, I'm not going to get into it, that NATO expansion created the dynamics for this particular um, crisis. And I think what we see is if, if one of two things, Either Reverend Barber doesn't understand the dynamics and he's saying it's a, it's moral to support the U.S. Um, using Ukraine as a proxy war against Russia and he doesn't understand the dynamics. Or if he does understand the dynamics, then he's taking a highly immoral position. I tend to think it's the superficial understanding that so many people have now of what's going on. Ajamu. Before you respond to that, Ajamu, I would, I'll take exception to that point. Uh, Garland, because I don't think that Reverend Barber is failing to understand the dynamics. And the reason I'm jumping in now, because this was going to be my next question to to uh, to Ajamu, and I think we can get get them both addressed now. I think that there is a there's a, a real serious problem that those in the African-American community in positions of leadership are facing. They don't have the guts to stand up and challenge the empire on issues of imperialism. They it's 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 a lot it's analogous to me to a lot of those in the uh, Israeli-Palestine debate, they want to open their conversation by saying, "Well, I believe Israel has the right to exist, but you can't hedge on this. You you got it. You got to You can't play safely in the fast lane on the freeway." That's that's my question. I, d- I understand. He doesn't understand it, and he's taking a position out of ignorance, or he does understand it, and he's taking an immoral position. I don't see another. Pop- okay. you know what I mean. I, that's I, I'm, where I'm, I'm with you. I'm yeah. with you. Th- uh, uh, go uh, ahead, Ajamu. Uh, uh, yes. I think we, I think you both are right in the sense that what what I think Barbara has done is to uh, take what he believes is a moral position, but what he doesn't understand is he is making an argument for what Obama talked about when Obama was given the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, and he shocked all of the delegates in that off in that uh, room when he began to make an argument for what he referred to and what the literature refers to as a just war. So Barbara may may have a different reading of the circumstances, uh, but the one that he does have seems to uh, suggest to him that the war uh, in Ukraine, the Ukrainian resistance, is in fact a just war. Now, the problem with that is this, that that's not, again, that takes him out, out of, the, of the Kingian 
uh, uh, moral position. Dr. King was an absolutist on the issue of nonviolence. And so by suggesting that there is something called a just war, uh, you cannot then uh, embrace or to identify yourself as a disciple of Dr. Negated, Dr. King's most, most central moral position. And that is the moral dilemma, I think, that uh, Reverend Barber has uh, uh, taken on for himself. And in doing that, he has helped to confuse not only himself, but to confuse the masses of our people, in particular black folks, who have been being bombarded with uh, nonstop propaganda, uh, with this, this evil Russian, um, you know, Hitler kind of, of stuff, uh, and providing uh, moral justification for supporting the what I consider to be the really immoral position of the U.S. with this Ukrainian war, especially when it becomes quite obvious that they see the Ukrainians as expendable, expendable that they are collateral damage for the long for the U.S. longer term objective, which is to weaken Russia. So Barbara has embraced that position and given it. Uh, moral authority. And that is, to me, uh, something that cannot be excused. And you write, it was King's break with the Democratic Party establishment, and at that time the majority position of the U.S. public who supported the war effort that made King the most hated man in the country. Exactly. And that's the part that you, you, you spoke to, uh, uh, Dr. Leon, the fact that uh, I think I think Barbara is a student of history. And he, I think, recognized what happened to Dr. King when Dr. King, in fact, broke <laughs> with power. And he is not prepared to do that yet. But even that, if that's the case, that objectively is an immoral position. You know, I, I, let me also throw in, because I've been saying this for a very long time, and, and you, you're much closer to this than I, so please correct me, that's the long-term message of the assassin's bullet. I don't I'll only go so far. I don't really want none of that smoke. I think you'll see that in many of Reverend Jackson's positions. You'll see that in a lot of Reverend Sharpton's positions. They'll only go so far because they got the message from 1968 and the previous assassinations loud and clear. And they'll only go so far. Well, I think you're right. I think that they, they, they are not prepared to break with the Democrat Party uh, establishment. But I also think that they are, um, they are cowards. Uh, and I think I put, I put them in different, a different category than the Reverend Barber to a certain extent. I think Reverend Barber, mm -hmm. up until this, this, this statement on, on Ukraine, I, I think, you know, in some ways did provide sort of a moral uh, a uh, 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 symbol, if you will, uh, of very moral. Of, of you know, speaking out for the poor and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, this is unfortunate that he either believes that uh, there's a just war going on, uh, or he has just um, confused his position by you know trying to make a, a, a political uh, connection between the 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 uh, duopolies. Uh, support for war and that questioning expenditures of where they're coming from uh, and the and the Democrats that are turned away from uh, providing support for the poor, addressing the needs of the poor uh, and raising questions about how did you pay for it? And in attempting to do that, he used clumsy language that now requires him to have to be able to answer, where do you really stand, Reverend uh, Barber, on this issue of, of war? 
Do you stand with Dr. King or do you stand with the neoliberal Democrats? I think the other thing that's important that you talk about is the, the you know, this trade-off where at some point people seem to get to a point where they feel like, you know what, it's so important what I'm doing for the poor here that I'm going to make a trade-off and I'm going to kind of go along with whatever the mainstream power brokers and the empire wants so that somehow I can separate the people at home from what from foreign policy and somehow think that I can get some kind you know I'm it's worth it because I'm working for these poor black folks at home when in reality this money going to you're you're, you're really making a, a, a an argument for this money that's all going out for the foreign policy of the empire and you're really making it worse for them uh, your thoughts well, that means that means that basically then uh, Reverend Barber and people like him don't really don't really uh, embrace the same principles that Dr. King embraced. You know, Kwame Nkrumah said that uh, uh, when you uh, compromise on a principle, you have abandoned that principle. You can't compromise on a, a principle of being opposed to war and violence uh, without abandoning that principle, because uh, war is the ultimate human rights violation, the ultimate crime. Uh, and so, you know, again, it, it, it begs the question, where do you stand morally, uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Barber? You know, are you with the uh, U.S. Uh, uh, imperialist project, or do you stand with the with the people? Do you do you stand in, in opposition uh, to the ultimate uh, expression of human rights of human rights, which is basically war? What do you stand? Because you can't you can't have both. You can't have guns and butter. You can't have it. And that's what people don't you can't understand. Have... That basically you can't talk about gun violence in the U.S. Uh, and then turn around and and uh, give uh, moral support to the ultimate expression of gun violence, which is war. In your opinion, is this his fear of criticism or is this a lack of understanding of the reality? I actually think it's both. Uh, I think he has come down on the side of being comfortable. Uh, I think he is not prepared to make that break that you talked about earlier, uh, Dr. Leon. He, he has convinced himself he's doing good work and he doesn't want to justify, doesn't want to jeopardize that good work by taking a position that will put in him in opposition to the powers that be within the Democrat Party. Ajamu Baraka, as always, thank you so much for that time. We really, really appreciate that analysis and we look forward uh, to having you back. My pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to the Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 